Hello everyone and welcome to the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. I am Federico Ast, I'm CEO at Cleros, and here I am with my co-host um, Damian Malvasic. Uh, and our interviewee for today is going to be, I'd say our friend already, uh, Sofina Pell, uh, who is an arbitrator in independent practice based in London. Uh, she's dual qualified as an avocat of the Bar of Quebec, Canada, and a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. She's a regular speaker at conferences and seminars on issues of international arbitration, international investment law, and dispute resolution. She's a guest lecturer at Columbia Law School, Harvard Law School, and McGill University Faculty of Law. And she created the Nappel Prize in International Arbitration, open to young scholars and practitioners worldwide, administered under the auspices of McGill University. Welcome, uh, Sophie, uh, to the broadcast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you for, for accepting our invitation. And, and you were recently uh, chosen as one of the best regarded lawyers in the UK. Uh, is that right? <laughs> in, in arbitration. Um, I, yes. I mean, there, there are, um, as you know, in, in, in law as in other fields, directories that are compiled by um, asking the market and users, um, you know, who they rate. And this year, um, my name came up amongst many others, but it's always obviously uh, a pleasure to see um, to see the market uh, recognizing the hard work and uh, the daily grind <laughs> of, as, as you said yourself, Fede, uh, it takes uh, 20 years to be an overnight success. So there we go. Exactly. Good. Um, well, let's let's get a bit to that um, road to the overnight success. Like, um, first, how, why did you study law, and why did you specialize in arbitration in particular? Mm. I studied law uh, at McGill University. Why law? Uh, because I had no idea what else to do, as many of us, <laughs> as many of us uh, do. Um, and I had, a, you know, very little idea of what, what a lawyer wa was doing on a day-to-day -day basis at the time. Uh, but McGill is known, its faculty of law is, is re recognized for being particularly, um, I would say, intellectual, quote-unquote, as opposed to, um, to, to uh, being more oriented towards uh, just practice and knowing the civil code and whatever it is. So there was a lot of... Socratic teaching. Um, there was a lot of um, small seminars and, and pushing you to expand your mind. Uh, and that, that is what I liked the most about it. Um, why arbitration uh, is a very good question. As always uh, in, in law, um, you don't really pick, uh, very few of us, um, especially, especially I would say perhaps um, colleagues like me who are generally interested in commercial law, if you are, you know, some, some of my colleagues are very interested in being criminal lawyers, for example, or, or doing family law, then obviously you have a, a sort of path before you. But those of us who don't really have an idea uh, as to specialty, um, join a firm and then essentially qualify uh, in whatever that firm, uh, wherever they need, they need you. Uh, in my particular case, uh, I was very much interested in advocacy and pleading and disputes. So obviously I started off as a litigation lawyer. And when I arrived in London, uh, I, um, a firm took me on. Uh, they had just received their first arbitration. They had no idea what that beast was, um, except that it looked like litigation, but by another name. And they needed someone who had a, some understanding of civil law, who knew Russian, which was my case, 
And so they hired me, and that's how I fell into into it. Uh, you speak Russian? I'm sorry? You, you speak Russian? I speak it very badly now because I'm out of practice, but I can read it and I can understand it, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, how did that... Uh, so you started your career in arbitration after... So I, yeah. Started, yeah, yeah. I started at that firm, yeah. And, and then obviously once you get the first case, then other cases follow because you, you become the person with the knowledge. And at the time, it was the, the very beginning of arbitration as a field of practice in and of itself. Since then, it has become a field of scholarship. The, the law has developed tremendously. Uh, and it, it is, you know, now every, uh, I would say, large firm uh, has an arbitration, a dedicated arbitration practice. Um, and it is a field of, um, I would say, transnational disputes um, are primarily decided in arbitration because it provides a forum that is not the courts of either party. So there is some perception of neutrality. The parties can choose uh, which seat of arbitration they want. They can choose their, their tribunal. Uh, they like that degree of control. And they can tailor uh, the procedure pretty much according to their needs. Um, so there is, you know, there is some flexibility. So that's why it's very popular and it has grown, it has mushroomed, I would say, in the past 20 years. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, thing to, to, to hear actually about a, a legal field developing so rapidly uh, in, in, in such a short time span. And actually, uh, thinking about what you were saying about, you know, the field of arbitration, it really piqued my interest. And even we didn't have these conversations before. So I, I actually, it never came up, you know, to ask, how does actually a day in the life of an arbitrator, uh, uh, how does it look? You know, I mean, you know, you mentioned the daily grind. How does it, how is, how does it actually function? And as an added question on my end is, you know, you, you were mentioning the Socratic principle during, you know, during your studies. It's something that I deeply admire as an approach to, to, to work and to thinking. And how does that affect your perception of what you're doing? All right. Okay. Um, how long do you have? So I should just say, um, for, for the sake of accuracy, that arbitration as a means of dispute resolution has been around for, you know, the, since the dawn of time, but mm -hmm. in the commercial world and for mm -hmm. investor to state disputes or for, you know, oil and gas disputes, very high stakes disputes, it's not been that long exactly. And certainly mm -hmm. as a field of specialization for lawyers, it's it's been even less long. So um, I, I just wanted to, to say that, but you're right that it is uh, as a field of specialization in law firms, it's not, it's been mm -hmm. 20, maximum 30 years. Now, how, what does my day look like? So I get up, um, I do some yoga uh, in order to, uh, <laughs> to plan the day ahead. And, um, and then, um, you know, when I talk about the daily grind, um, this field of practice suffers from a misperception. Because we travel, well, we used to travel a lot. Uh, because there is a lot of conferences, people speaking in public, a lot of egos and a lot of personalities. It it has the the veneer of a very a, a field a field that's very glamorous. Uh, the reality of being an arbitrator and a decision maker is 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 very isolating. At the end of the day, it is yourself in front of your computer and whatever submissions are made to you. 
and you have to decide um, according to a set of rules or principles, but in good conscience. And that requires a very sound knowledge of the type of lawyer that you are. Uh, and that knowledge is acquired over time. Um, that's why arbitrators tend to be, uh, I mean, formerly they used to be, uh, you were an arbitrator at the end of your career, technically. Nowadays, it's completely different. You can start much earlier, which I did, and others start even earlier than I did in their 30s. But I, 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 I find that you need a very sound knowledge, not only of your capacities, but of your limitations as a, as a, as a decision maker and as a lawyer. And you need a maturity of thought that comes with, with life itself. So mm -hmm. I've, that's the daily grind. The daily grind is me with the submissions that the parties have made to me and deciding so who's right and why and more importantly who's wrong and why because it's very important for the losing party to understand why you do not believe or you do not uh, you're not persuaded by whatever they said and okay. and that's a lot of time spent reading a lot of sp time spent in reflection uh, a double double checking yourself all the time you know what if I'm wrong about this? Uh, you know, do I let me let me go down that that logical that decision tree again? So th it, that's what it's about, and and that's why um, it, it's not for everyone, um, and that's why it's, that's not glamorous at all. Um, otherwise, my days are also spent obviously in hearings. Um, that's a lot more fun because obviously you have interaction with counsel, with the parties, with witnesses, with your fellow arbitrators, if you're more than one on a panel, um, and that's that's the that's the pleasant part of it. Is the um, it's it's the um, the more professional collegiate part of it. Uh, my days are also spent, obviously, uh, writing, lecturing. Um, that's also very pleasant, although not on not virtually because speaking and not seeing my audience is something that drives me crazy <laughs> but there we are i'm gonna have to get used to it for a, for a time anyway um and um and my days are spent drafting um drafting awards drafting procedural orders um that that's essentially what it is so as you can see there's not much there for for glamour um Socratic principles, how do I, 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 so I didn't know this at the time because I was too young um, and, and I obviously had no, no one in my family was a lawyer, so I had no sort of template to follow. But I now know with the passage of time, and I suspect I'm going to find out even as I, as I grow older, that um, the McGill Socratic system has taught me to be, has developed, first of all, intellectual curiosity. Um, which, just to give you a very practical example, is this, my being interested in what you guys do is mm -hmm. a very good example of that. Uh, I, you know, the, to be able to um, have the to have the, the the luxury of being able to to be interested in other ventures that maybe have an intersection with what I do, but maybe not, and finding that intersection and finding that relevance. I think that comes from. Uh, having been pushed to open up my mind and not and question things, not being mm. critical particularly, not 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 criticizing for criticizing, but you know being able to um, to ask, you know, what if, what if, uh, and I, I find that is one of the reasons why I do what I do because it, it I'm, I, I find I'm privileged to be able to uh, to do this for a living, to question, to um, to uh, ask, you know, to to discover. 
uh, to be intellectually curious. Yes. So that's well, my that's answer. Really, that's really interesting because, well, as you know, my my background, uh, also Damians, they come from the humanities. Um, Indeed. In my case, it's philosophy, and one of the first things that I learned at the philosophy university was the Socratic method, and in particular, like the what is um, X question, like uh, what is the essence of something. And when I started working on decentralized justice, so what uh, the question I asked is was like, um, yeah, what is a justice system basically? Right? How should this work, right? Um, and I knew nothing about law. Right, and I, but I was thinking of what they call now like first principles. Thinking, yeah. I think that's that's what I was thinking uh, before they call it like first principles. But it was something that, in some way, came from Socrates and my philosophy background, like the way in which to ask the question about uh, justice systems. Yeah, I and and that's precisely um, I think where you and I have intersected, which is um, the, the endeavor that Kleros has of, of um, adapting or re even reinventing uh, the notion of justice. I find that aspect of your venture, uh, amongst many others, but particularly that aspect, as you know, uh, particularly interesting. And that's what I find appealing from a, from a Socratic point of view and, and also from a practical point of view, of course. Before we, we get into Kleros, like, Tell, tell us a bit what a traditional arbitration case looks like from when from the beginning to the end, like from when conflict starts until there is an award. How, how does it look like? We, uh, from you mean some like procedurally milestones? What, what, yeah, yeah, yeah in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, like how um, two companies have a conflict and they have to contact an arbitrator and then yes. yeah, that process. Yes. Okay, so uh, if if I am a company. Um, or any user with a contract with an arbitration clause in it, um, uh, uh, because you need you need to have agreed to arbitration to go to it. It's a it's a consensual process. Otherwise, the default choice is usually the courts of of um, the jurisdiction uh, close more closely connected to the contract. But if you have agreed, um, then you have a dispute under your contract. Let's say your seller doesn't. Um, doesn't give you what you want, or you have he hasn't. If you're the vendor, he hasn't. You haven't paid. Uh, the the purchaser hasn't paid. Let's say um, you, um, you 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 go to the. Usually there is an arbitration institution because these things are managed by institutions such as, for example, the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris. That's one example. Uh, there are many others. The American Arbitration Association. They are the people who sort of will find you an arbitrator if you can't find one. We have a set of rules, procedural rules that you will apply. It just it just makes the process a little bit more structured. But you can also have an arbitration that has none of that, that is completely made up on the spot between the parties and the arbitrators. That's that's more that's rarer because it's more it's harder work. But uh, but let's say we have an institution. So you contact the institution. You say I have a claim. This is my um, this is my clause. This is the name of my arbitrator. And if you don't have a name, then you ask the institution to give you a list of names, and then you can do your due diligence and choose one. And then you pay the registration fee, and then off you go. Uh, the, uh, the institution will send uh, your request for arbitration to the other party the, and ask them to reply, to uh, also choose an arbitrator. 
Um, and if, unless there is a sole arbitrator, then obviously the parties have to either agree on one or the institution will appoint one uh, if they don't agree. And then uh, you have the other side, the respondent will file their submissions saying why they are justified in not paying or not supplying, whatever. Uh, then let's let's say I am appointed. Let's say I'm a sole arbitrator. I'm not alone. Or sometimes I'm the chair of a panel, but let's say I'm, I'm alone. Then I will contact the parties and say, um, I've read the bare bones of your dispute. And we now, we now have to agree a procedural timetable. Now, the procedural timetable has one purpose primarily, and it is to give the parties an opportunity to be heard. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the reason for that is that there is this, uh, by now familiar to you, um, treaty called the New York Convention 1958. The New York Convention 1958 is one of the most successful treaties uh, of all time because it has over, I think now 158 or 159 parties, state parties to it. And it allows the enforcement of arbitration awards in all the country's parties to it without having to reopen the merits of the dispute. So there are some very limited grounds for striking down an award and they have to do with, you know, lack of due process and lack uh, against public order and that sort of very serious breaches. But there is no opportunity to say, well, the operators got it wrong on the law, let's reopen. Um, so that's, that's um, uh, that the purpose of the procedural um, timetable that I'm going to set with the parties is that there is due process, there is equality of arms, and everyone is heard and feels that they've had their day in court. Now, the problem with that, to come to a topic that is close to your hearts, is that it takes time. It takes time. Due process takes time. Uh, fairness takes time. The parties, once they, when, once they are in a dispute, um, they will want you to hear everything that they have to say, and it's quite normal. Um, and so it's very difficult to have between the time that I write to the party saying, let's go, and the time that I am sitting in a hearing in any dispute that is not very, very small, where there are very few issues, let's say a, pay, a payment dispute. But any other dispute that has a little bit more uh, complexity to it, very rare that there will be less than a year between the time that I'm appointed and the time that I'm sitting, listening to the hearing, just because of that, you know, those, um, those milestones. And then there is a hearing uh, where usually uh, used to be live, they are now over Zoom, where I hear witnesses, where I hear argument from counsel. Uh, more rarely, there are hearings that, that don't take place uh, where you decide on the papers only, but that's very rare uh, and it has yeah. to be agreed by everyone. And then I render an award as quickly as possible. I try to do it within three months, but again, it very much depends how, how complex the dispute is. And that's it. That's, that's what it is. And after that, my goal, my duty, apart from you know, running proceedings that are fair and that are as efficient as they can be. My duty is to render an award that is enforceable under mm. the New York Convention. So that that's that's my override. That's my job essentially. That's why that's why I'm paid for is to render a, an award that they can show to a court and say, you know, this is legit. This this can I can enforce this. I can get my money. Um, how how has COVID changed like the arbitration process? Like I I. The, Traditionally, it was done like in person, 
but now it's over Zoom. Like, do you think it can be done over Zoom or it's different and it doesn't exactly work the same way? Um, yeah, how do you see yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, at, at, the, at the level of, of high stakes commercial disputes, uh, very little has changed except the fact that we are not all in the same room um, and we, we essentially are, are hearing witnesses remotely. So that means because of time zones, mostly, if you have if you are dealing with time zones, the for example, I have a hearing coming up in September where um, the time zones involved are from the Pacific coast in the U.S. all the way to um, um, uh, Belarus. So that means that my hearing day is going to be about four hours only very, very short to accommodate everyone because otherwise either someone's going to wake up at four in the morning or someone's going to go to bed at two in the morning. So in order to, so that's what, that's the biggest change. The biggest change is, you know, the sort of uh, accommodating that process via Zoom. Um, in terms of procedure, otherwise, uh, you know, you have to deal with um, the challenges of hearing witnesses online which means that you have to make sure that there is no uh, funny business going on with witnesses in a room by themselves being coached by someone off camera, for example. Um, that sort of thing that you that you know typically does not happen if you are seeing them live in front of you. But otherwise, these are very small. I mean, relatively small and matters that can that can be easily overcome. The biggest change for me is that uh, for for cases that are you know uh, smaller. Where uh, or involving people uh, and parties in jurisdictions where they don't readily have access to network or, or Zoom, uh, and and that that's a, a, a bigger challenge uh, because it it's a it's a problem of access to justice essentially. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there are, there are many friction points that we've also identified in the past several months in our own work working completely remotely, but they are truly minor and. They are manageable in one way or another, but it is it is true that it is the infrastructure that seems to be still lacking and trying to catch up, although quite rapidly, but still trying to catch up with 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 the advances that are happening in the last few months. I had a question regarding uh, Feder mentioned to me at one point that you enrolled, con you know, concerning this topic of infrastructure and access to justice and everything. But you enrolled in some kind of a blockchain program at Oxford. What was I your did. motivation for that? I did. Um, I, I enrolled in the blockchain strategy program that um, the Said Business School offers at the University of Oxford. I mean, there are many programs available um, mm -hmm. right now, but that, in, that was in 2019, I think. Well, Why? You know, uh, yes. Yeah? Carry on. Yes, exactly. This was my question. What was your basic motivation for that? What, uh, what drove you to it? Well, I... As I had been, I had been interested. I have been interested in uh, the impact of technology in my field for quite a few years now, going back to 2016, 2017, where I wrote, co-wrote an article, uh, a book chapter on the impact of AI uh, on uh, decision making, arbitral decision making, particularly, and um, and that got me interested in technology, uh, just generally, and and that was the first time that someone in arbitration was questioning, you know, technology and, and, and how directly it impacted our field. Um, another example of the Socratic thinking. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then, obviously, the more I got into um, technology, the more the, the, the word blockchain kept coming up. And it infuriated me that I couldn't get my head around what that meant in practical terms. And as you know very well, in this field, um, if you go online and type blockchain, you get a lot of drops and you get you don't know if you if you're not, you know, into a little bit knowledgeable about the field. You don't know what mm -hmm. is good quality and what isn't. And so right. I got I got pretty unnerved by the, about that. And at one point I had about, you know, a, a, a matter that settled early. So that meant I had a few weeks off off. A quote unquote, I didn't have my hearing. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to get to the bottom of this or at least scratch the surface. And that, that's why I enrolled. And, uh, and I, it, it just, it opened the window completely. I just entered the, I entered your world essentially. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized, um, I was fascinated by not only the technical aspect of it, which I thought was very interesting, and but it was more the ethos, the ethos of decentralization, the distrust of government, the distrust of institutions, including courts for that matter. And that to me was um, was really the, the driver for um, continuing to be interested in it even after the course. It is truly nonlinear thinking that somehow brought us all together and it's uh, it's a uh, it's truly a beautiful thing um how did you get to know claros how did you how did you so i i i was trying to think about that some people often ask me this um and i i, I wonder if it isn't during that course actually uh i think mm -hmm. in the materials because in the materials that they give you there is the primary material that you need to absorb for for the courses and for the assignments but they give you links to all sorts of secondary uh, material online that you can, you know, pursue if you're interested. And um, I was quite struck at the time that the course was given anyway, there weren't many lawyers on it and certainly no disputes lawyers. And every time I was sort of raising my hand in the chat room saying, but guys, you know, um, what about the legal aspects of this? You know, what about the regulation of this? And everybody was like, oh my God, not her again. You know, <laughs> of getting in our way already. We can't function and go forward if we have to listen to the lawyers all the time. And and at one point, I think I follow, must have followed a link that talked about decentralized justice um, in, in general terms. And that's where I came across your white paper, the original one, 2017 one. Right. And and I started reading, and that's where I saw that you were, um, you know, putting game theory at the core of your model, and I really got hooked after that because I said to myself, you know, I have got to understand what that means in terms of what they want to do and what I do. They call it arbitration. They call it arbitration. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think it's arbitration, Sophie? Sorry. You don't think it's arbitration. It is arbitration, but not as I practice it uh, or mm. I know it. Um, and so I, that's where I started talking about Kleros when I was invited, mostly in university environments. Um, at Columbia, for example, is I gave an entire session on your, on your model uh, based on your second white paper this time, the 2019 one, which was a little bit more accessible, I think, um, for, you know, for, the, for, the, for lawyers anyway. And, uh, and and that's how you know uh, we um, 
we got in touch because I decided, oh, and then, oh, yes, and then, no, the, the most important thing of, of all of this is that after having given, you know, a few talks like that, people, um, uh, I was invited to give a talk uh, on um, the future of arbitration and blockchain disputes more generally in Brussels in November 2019, I think, and, uh, and, and, and um, Clément was invited as well. And that's how I really got, I, and then I decided, oh my God, if I'm going to be face-to-face with one of the co-founders of Kleros, <laughs> I might as well know what I'm talking about. And so that's when I decided to join your Telegram chat uh, to see what was, you know, the stuff that you were talking about, what was going on in people's heads, the questions that were being asked, and also to see if I understood anything, frankly, because I said to myself, you know, if I don't understand anything, at least I'm going to corner Clément at one point and ask him questions. Uh, which, but that uh, that did not happen to that extent, hopefully. But um, yeah, that's how it happened. That's that's how I found out about you. Well, I guess in the Telegram, if you can like walk through all the people asking for exchanges and the price talk, <laughs> you can actually. <laughs> well, no, I think that an interesting thing of of what we do, and not just in Claros, but all of the decentralized companies and projects, is the the the, the community ethos. Like if we are building what we call decentralized justice, which is like a peer-to-peer endeavor, it, it kind of needs to have this kind of um, community flavor to it, I guess. Com- completely. Um, I will say from the, my limited experience, I will say that you are um, more community-driven than many others um, who are community-driven um, to a degree. <laughs> Um, but uh, to be, you're quite purists about it, uh, and I, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. It, it, I mean, it comes with as with democracy. I mean, it, it comes with uh, uh, a flip side to it, I suppose. But uh, but it is an important thing. You're absolutely right. Uh, if you are going to be true to that principle, yeah. Everyone likes to say they are community driven, but yeah, uh, it's important that you give the community decision making power because this is in the end a political movement if you want it's uh changing the way some governance so very old governance structures work so it's it it, it won't it, it will happen through a type of movement or it will not happen it's not that we are just going to develop a, and this is something that colin rule always says uh like it's, you're not going to change this by developing just software you you, you need to develop software but you need to have people believe that this software can work and that it's it can be legitimate to to use. Uh, so that's a very big part of, of what we do. Uh, and I, uh, I, I mean, always say, it, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry to interrupt. I, w- I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm struck by what you're saying because that has a lot of commonality with the way that arbitration developed, the arbitration that I practice, because it wasn't always you know, it didn't just happen that this was very popular and accepted because at first uh, arbitration was outlawed as being, you know, a competition for the state courts and trying to get into the way of the state courts. Uh, Some countries did not accept the validity of arbitration agreements until relatively late. Um, And um, it, it took a community and, and a market to impose the legitimacy of arbitration to say that, you know, this is what we want and we're the users. 
Um, so in that sense, uh, I find that there's a lot of commonality at, at another level, but similarly. And arbitration is often um, considered to be um, a bit of a clique, um, the practitioners of it, uh, which I find, I mean, is, is a little bit of a, of a quick label, but I can see that the community's sense of it may feel to the outside world as being a little bit closed um, to others. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 for what I've known, uh, of course, people are are skeptical of Kleros, but yeah, you know, after going and speaking at some conferences, of course, some people think you are crazy, but then maybe five percent of the people who listen to you, they think, well, maybe there's some sense into what he he's saying, and in the end, that's how this movement uh, changed the world, right? Um, I always. I use the, the the example of Wikipedia because kind of Wikipedia was proposing something similar to what Claros proposes in the in the sense of okay we knew how to make an encyclopedia Britannica did an encyclopedia and they had a centralized editor who called um, writers who were experts in their fields and then Wikipedia comes with this new model of yeah we, we're going just to let anyone um, like participate in in writing articles. And people said, like, this is crazy. Like, this is never going to work. It's going to be a very bad encyclopedia. But then what Wikipedia, like, taught us is that if the incentives are right and the mechanism decide, design is correct, so you can have basically anonymous people from the internet write an encyclopedia. If you see, this is quite similar to what people say about Kleros. So you have this traditional dispute resolution method of um, centralized agent, an expert who has to decide who is right and then we come not just we but others of of course and we can put this power in the hands of people and this can be a peer-to-peer -peer process and people say what well, but this is crazy like how can you have anyone without the proper skills arbitrate cases well but if the incentives are right and the mechanism design is, is correct so this this could work and we we have seen this working once and again of course, in the type of, of cases that Claros seeks to solve, not, not every type of cases, but it's kind of the same movement from centralized agent who knows what to do to the community taking control. It's kind of a democratic movement, if you want. Completely, completely. No, I can see that. I, it took me a while, but I can now see that. <laughs> Sophie, uh, how do you see arbitration evolving in like the next 10 years, the traditional arbitration, right? Where, where is this going? Not just because of Claros, but also machine learning and other technology trends that are affecting the world. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but from what I, I think a fairly uncontroversial proposition would be to say that uh, arbitration will have to diversify, stratify, um, to be more adaptable. Um, at the moment, it is adaptable as compared to court litigation, for example. But it is um, the arbitration that 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 is practiced uh, most often is suited to a certain type and a certain level of disputes and a certain financial level of disputes, particularly uh, for the reasons that I've explained. Um, and I think there is going to be a need uh, for arbitration to recognize that 
some disputes are better left to some, I wouldn't say some disputes, but some questions are better decided with the, with the help of machines. I'm not saying perhaps fully automated just yet, but um, at, there are things that machines do a lot better than we do. Um, calculations, anything to do with numbers, anything to do with sifting through a large um, you know, volume of data. And a lot of my quest at the moment is precisely to find out that partnership and the optimizing that partnership. Um, and I, my, um, my worry is that um, there, is, there is not enough that is being done in terms of training lawyers, young lawyers and, and older lawyers, more senior lawyers, to understand how to deal with that partnership, to uh, use those, uh, those, those technological tools to, to best effect. And then, of course, there is um, the phenomenon that, uh, that you and I have talked about many times, which is to make arbitration adaptable to e-commerce disputes that are immediate, that are low cost, low value, uh, and, and to make it you know, adaptable to that. And that's obviously what your proposition is. Uh, and and that of that of others. Um, so yeah, I, the short answer to your question is uh, arbitration is going to have to stop thinking that it is you know all things to all people and really make an effort to make itself more diverse uh, on on every level. You know, it's interesting to me, like the the last couple of minutes of our conversation and discussing institutions and the changes in these institutions and the creation of new movements that uh, go far beyond developing just new technologies. It must be incredibly difficult to envisage not just the change in the way that we use uh, different tools to come up and, let's say, resolve disputes or arbitrate things or whatever else. It's also a sort of an ideological shift. It is, it, is, it is a change in the foundation of, of the way uh, these, now, these old institutions work and bringing about something that truly creates a, 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 a crack in evolution that happens at a particular point in time. And I think thinking about that, for me, the question, one of the questions that sort of arises every time, of course, there is one thing that you know we say that it is the tooth of time that will take its toll, meaning that you know over time, let's say lawyers will become adapted to these new technologies, to new modes of of uh, 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 of new institutions. But you know, is there something that can be uh, done, let's say in the short or the mid term, uh, how to communicate with with legal experts, with lawyers? especially those that are resilient to change, to sort of bring this idea a little bit closer to them? I mean, um, there, is, there is already afoot a, uh, cer certain initiatives to try to do that with, with lawyers. I mean, to me, the key lies with the users of legal services um, because lawyers are very obviously responsive and that's one problem, actually, responsive to, their, to, 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 the, to the users of their services. They will offer you the client what, what the client demands. And the clients or the users of legal services and dispute services will have to say, well, look, 
we no longer trust what you're giving us. We're trusting something else. So that's where the, the, the whole decentralization movement is very much about shifting trust away yeah. from institutions and, and at the moment, apparently to, to peers, uh, which is not without its problems as well, but that's what it is at the moment. And so the question is, you know, as a lawyer, uh, if, if, if you sort of discard all the institutional stuff that you have always been taught, you know, was, was the answer to your client's problems and you look at what the client wants, um, how, how do you practice? How do you offer what you have to offer? That, that's, that to me is very much, it's, it's, a, it, it's to get the client to trust um, what, that what you're offering meets their current needs. And because many of the clients I'm thinking about, IBM is an example, but there are others, you know, are very um, um, tech savvy or, or even leaders in tech. Um, for lawyers need to step up and say, okay, you know, we understand, we can speak that language. We can stop offer, offering legal services the way that they were offered. We can be cross-disciplinary. Um, that, that's, and, and that, that requires, but that requires a complete shift in, um, in, in, yeah, in the offer of legal services. And, and I would say, I would venture to say in the training and, and, and teaching of future lawyers as well. It's, it's a, it's a societal change that it requires. And, um, Frankly, if, if COVID does not bring that about, I don't know what, what will, but uh, we shall see. Sophie, uh, to wrap this up, um, so you, you give a lot of talks at universities and you are very focused on the education of future arbitrators. Uh, well, I've seen you talk um, Columbia, for example, and you have the Napper Prize, uh, which is oriented to young lawyers. So what piece of advice you can give to like a lawyer who is in the early stages of his or, of, or her career, like to adapt to the world that is coming in, in law and in arbitration? Um, my assuming, assuming that I am placed to give advice at all, I would say, um, I would say, first of all, embrace change and see it as an opportunity. Um, there is, um, Look for look for the disruptiveness. Where is it? How can you how can you as a lawyer provide value added to that that um, disruptiveness? The work of lawyers traditionally was always to bring order to chaos, uh, and now I mean order. There's nothing wrong about it unless it is stifling. And so I would say to the young lawyers, look at disruption and look how you with your training and the training that you're given to be, you know, orderly and um, to provide a, a grounding uh, in your advice. How can that serve um, the, the new disruptive enterprises that, that are out there? Uh, how can that serve the decentralization process? How can it make it legitimate and at the same time uh, prevent abuse? Um, that's, that's on the philosophical point. On the more practical point, I would say, um, do not keep thinking about law end. Do not think of the law as an end in itself. It's the law and something else. Find an industry that that fires you up and see how you, you know, how the law can intersect with it. Find an, a, a type of, of human activity, and obviously as well. Um, Stay on top of the technological developments. Make sure that you understand them. Make sure that you speak to, have a dialogue with um, the people on the tech side, so that you 
can understand how each other thinks. That's what I would say. And have fun. That's the more important part, you know. Uh... In the process, have fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sophie, thank you very, very much for participating in the Decentralized Justice um, broadcast. Um, you, you know, you're already a friend and a, I guess a mentor of Kleros. Uh, and so thank you very much for, for being with us and to share uh, your knowledge and your experience with, with the community. And we will see you very soon in Telegram, I guess. I hope so. I hope so. And um, it's a privilege anyway. Thank you very much and long live Kleros. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Here, bye bye.